So professional, cow. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) What up, Chad? Chad? Chad, cow. What's up, guys? Where would this podcast be if this was a professional podcast? Well, it'd be a lot more boring, that's for sure. There'd be a lot less swears, too. (laughs) The PG-rated Chad B. That'd be no fun at all. (laughs) Go fuck yourself. What did you guys think about... Did you you see that uh, Dorchan mentioned in that Deloitte World Economic Forum article or this research report or something like that it's it's so strange and i can't really put my finger on why it's like it's so weird just the whole article itself i don't know if you guys actually checked this out and looked at the uh the references and things like that all of so that the the thorchain reference it, it like it makes some kind of you know good reference to thorchain saying like oh yeah proof of solvency and uh you know just some other talking points that we have but then the the reference to uh to that at the end of the article it's number 28 i think it's one of those ai written scam articles you know that like i'm I'm sure you've all seen this uh it's just where they they're they're just randomly generated and they put them out they blast them out to a hundred different like bs crypto news sites and they're like is Thorchain, the next Polkadot, or like these, this particular batch of them, which was pretty big around like November, I think, was uh, one in particular that I think this project, uh, Big Eyes, whatever the heck that is, paid for. Because every single one of these articles would mention is Thorchain and Big Eyes like competitors with Polkadot? Like, what's the difference? Like, it's just like things that just don't they, they don't really make sense, obviously, from anyone that is like paying attention so i just like looking through the references in this article it was just strange because there was it wasn't just the thorchain reference that was like a weird scammy sort of reference not any kind of like official documentation or like a real article or something like that just a scam article but then other sources are also in this that similar vein of like they're not i don't think these articles are even written by real people i'm pretty sure they're just uh (laughs) these are all either like marketing pieces or like they're written by ai or what so like i don't understand like what this whole report thing is and why it exists but it's a really weird scammy vibe in the first place yeah i hadn't seen it at all until like literally like seconds before I jumped into this space and I'm like actually trying to read the article a little bit now and wrap my head around what the fuck they're even talking about. I mean, I think it sounds like they're they're at, I mean, I haven't read the whole thing. I just look at this one particular page, page 34 of this, like, you know, 110 page document um, put out there by the world economic forum. And I think in this particular page, they're just talking about proof of solvency and in, in the context of like, um, Sometimes exchanges that make sense, proof of, li- proof of assets, proof of liabilities, proof of solvency, like all this kind of stuff. 
But I don't really don't understand why it references Thorchain in this particular case. Because one, it's not a centralized exchange. Uh, and I guess it does have proofs of solvency, of, you know, because it, it does. But I don't know. Even like the, the other link below it, it talks about cash gold, which I've never heard of. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, exactly. It, isn't it just like the weirdest scammy vibe where it's just like, it seems like it was not written by a person, like the entire report. Uh, I, and maybe it was just me, but I, I definitely got that vibe. I feel that vibe. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I've only kind of glanced at it too. I saw your a, a comment you posted somewhere and just glanced right before this also. But yeah, I mean, it, it feels like not, it feels worse than like even a, a chat GPT or something generated article. It just feels like a bunch of slapped together, like weird sentences from various places that don't quite fit together. But yeah, I don't know. Pretty weird, but kind of cool to see it in there. I don't really... <laughs> I don't really know what the World Economic Forum even is itself. Is like, is that something that is legit, or is that something that's not legit? You will eat the bug in the pod and trade on the Thorchain. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I just see people posting all about it on uh, on uh, Twitter all all the time. I haven't. I haven't gone way too deep into that I, i'm sure there, there, there's people here who are like absolutely jumping up and being like oh my god it's, you know about the, the the plot of the world economic well world. honestly it I definitely it, it definitely can. is a real organization <laughs> with yeah. actual like powerful people involved the the part that's like too up to your interpretation is whether that's like a giant global conspiracy of lizard people trying to get you to eat bugs or if it's people like genuinely trying to fix the systems of society but it's definitely a real a real organization for sure i've heard about it in the past but i never really like paid any attention you know but you're not a member of the world economic forum they're the ones that are like you will own nothing and be happy like that was like that was like a <laughs> yeah, real yeah, that was a, a real quote from somebody in in it but stuff like that yeah i know they say a bunch of like weird like weird thing i mean like obviously like they say a lot of like controversial things so yeah it's just so strange that they put out like reports like this but the things that are like are just saying nonsensical things it's it's just so strange i'm just wondering like how it how has it come to this why why are we in this situation in the first yeah. place yeah i mean right now i'm looking at their site and like they're talking about the uh their davos manifesto about showing zero tolerance for corruption and upholding human rights and things that everybody would agree with, with no solutions. <laughs> Don't worry. They like our proof of solvency. We're, we're safe. Well, I'm glad we, we finally got uh, the world economic forum, whatever the fuck that really means. <laughs> <laughs> As, as if it took, as if, as if it's really that hard to figure out that um, when you're holding other people's money, that there should be, you know, proof of solvency. Like, as if that's like a hard thing to, to wrap your head around or come to conclusion of. Yeah, that's why they paid Deloitte to write a report on it, and then Deloitte didn't write a report on it. They just got ChatGPT to get some references. <laughs> <laughs> just some random fucking. Oh wait, this is due tomorrow. Oh, man. Yeah. They, they reference some scam article that was also probably generated by AI. <laughs> it's just AI hey, that, that's literally what AI. it is. It's just one AI writing the reference and the other AI quoting that reference. Uh, that's, uh, that's journalism today. 
Yeah, that's really the problem is like the people in these power positions like don't even have a clue what they're talking about. And uh, that seems like the source of many of these problems. I'm kind of curious to understand what the actual income is for the World Economic Forum. Is it just like NATO, you know, funding the whole thing or do they actually sell something? You know, I have no idea. Weird. Yeah, I don't want to rebond it too much because there's definitely people who know way more about this than than me. And so let's just move on to other things that we can actually. I mean, yeah, it, it was just interesting that they wrote about it in the report, and it also just had like the strangest, most scammy vibes. So obviously, whenever you see like some kind of report or something like that, you should check check the references and like see what it is that they're they're looking at, and like make your own determination of whether it's scammy or not. I think it's super scammy, like what they what they put out. So. I mean, like, I'm not supportive of the referencing ThorChain in a, a terribly written article that makes makes no reference to actually anything that has, like, been accomplished here. It's only just, you know, quoting an AI-generated scam article paid for, for to, to shill another uh, crypto project, which does nothing. So, yeah, very, very, very strange. But Agre- Agreed. Yeah, I figured today we can talk about... Uh, two of the new ADRs which have been proposed. We can kind of go through what the ADRs are and uh, some of the some of the context around them and the, the changes that are going to be made if they go through and just the, the state of the whole thing. So there, there's two new ADRs, uh, number seven and number eight. And that's how we'll, we'll refer to them. And uh, yeah, let, let's just let's just go through them one at a time. We we can start with uh, ADR seven which is to change the uh, fund migration interval and the churn interval to increase the, the fund and, and uh, churn interval. Uh, so, Chad, you, you know a lot more about like how the, 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 the churns work in terms of like the, the fund migration and churn interval. So could you explain like what exactly those two concepts actually uh, mean? Yeah, so um, the validators we have they, you know, have these uh, Asgard vaults, and each Asgard vault has about 20, you know, approximately 20 um, validators in each, more or less. Uh, maybe a little bit less now because there's um, 84 validators today. But anyways, approximately that. And so each one of these validators has, um, you know, runs these Asgard vaults with virtual signatures, and everybody has a, a part of a private key, so to speak. Um, it's not entirely correct, but we'll just imagine that's correct just for simplicity purposes. And so every time the validator set changes, we need to, you know, push out, make the TSS shares, you know, of the people who are leaving the network to make them in, invalid and un, uh, unuseful. And we need to, the new people coming in, we need them to have, you know, TSS shares that do work, right, in a way that, you know, is secure and all these things. So every time we change our validator set, we have to generate uh, a new TSS shares, a new vaults. And then when we do that, we have to migrate the old vaults to the new vaults. So it's moving every sat in the entire network uh, from an old uh, location to a new location. From from typically from five volts to another a new set of five volts, most commonly. Um, that can be six volts. That can be you could go down to four, depending upon the change of the total number of um, validators in the network. But generally speaking, it's like you know five to five or something like this. And um, that's just done to to make sure that we don't um, you know. We don't like have keys that just existing out in the internet somewhere that could one day be reutilized to, you know, steal funds into the future. 
that's called TSS, uh, like resharing, which we don't do. Uh, other products might do that, like um, Definity does it, I think. But we don't do that because it doesn't make any sense economically or security-minded uh, at all. So every time we churn, we have to... We have, to, we have to create new vaults, move all the funds over because we have a new validator set. So the churning interval just dictates like how often we actually churn. And I think right now it's like approximately three or three and a half days. We do a churn and we kick out old validators and we pull in new validators and we just do this process because we want to make sure that like there's no kind of capture happening. We want to make sure new people come in, there's competition to come in through bond sizes, blah, 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 all these things. The migration interval is states basically how how fast we churn in terms of like um, how much time is, uh, how many times we churn, like how many times we migrate and how fast that migration is. And so we generally don't migrate everything in a single transaction, um, be largely because uh, of a few different reasons. One reason is in the off random crazy scenario where we are churning to a, a, a location we can't actually control, uh, we don't send all the money at once. And so we would have some, at least some kind of warning or, or ability to stop that if that were to happen. That's never happened in the history of the network. I doubt it will ever actually happen, to be honest with you. But you put you put the security in there just for, for, for giggles in a sense. But the other and more useful, more important reason is to make sure that that um, we, didn't have, we don't have all the funds in flight. Like if we were to move 100% of the Bitcoin in a single transaction, then like, you know, all the Bitcoin is, is, you know, is being put into a single transaction. And then if you wanted to, you know, reuse or, or, or do swaps and trades and like, well, all of it's in flight right now. And so that kind of creates complexities around like, how do we actually send out this Bitcoin that somebody's doing a regular swap with? Technically it's possible with like UTX, how UTXO works, blah, blah, blah. But like, just, we want, we don't want to make assumptions about how individual chains work, but we don't know how much, what chains we're using now versus also into the future. And so we want to make sure that we just don't have all of the funds in flight at any given moment. And so we break it up currently into like, I think five or six uh, steps, you know, and, and each time we do approximately, you know, 20 ish percent uh, of the funds are being moved at any given time. And then we, we do our, the migration interval itself. And so over the course of approximately six hours or so, I think it is, uh, or no, actually, I think it's like an hour or something like this. But over the course of like an uh, six hours or so, we uh, we move from the old Asgards uh, to the new Asgards, and that's what the migration interval is. So now that we understand like what the turn interval is and what the migration interval is, now we'll talk about why the chain. This ADR to begin with was that... Um, Wallets, when they send in funds to the network, they have to look up what the you know vaults are to send funds to. And obviously, you don't want to send to an old vault, right? Uh, a vault that's being retired and the process being retired is fine. You can you can send to an old and retiring vault, and everything will be still work, and you don't lose any funds or anything like this. Uh, but once a vault is retired and there's no more funds in it, at that point, if you send funds to that vault, you're basically sending it into a black hole. And you will not get your get your funds. And so what ended up happening was, um, I think it was Trust Wallet who had a bug in their code. They did not they cast inbound addresses when they shouldn't have, and they send funds to an old address that they shouldn't have sent them to, and they burn some funds and do that software bug. And so um, Trust Wallet was very much upset with this notion, and were upset with 
uh, Thorchain for for whatever reasons, and um, kind of place pressure on uh, specifically the Nine Realms team to uh, make some alterations to make it you know less likely that people will send funds to an old vault. And the, the way that's being accomplished is just by a, uh, increasing the churn rate and increasing the migration interval, and therefore the the time that you would have to get wrong is increased and therefore less likely to send funds to an old vault. Um, publicly, I've always said that you should never cash inbound addresses for more than 15 minutes. Everything should be you know, um, looked up every 15 minutes or so for uh, other reasons as well around economic security of the network. So that's that's the background here, is that the idea is to increase the churn interval, increase the migration interval, to make it more difficult for UIs and wallets and what, what have you to fuck it up and send funds to an old uh, inactive vault that was, was retired, uh, you know, hours ago, a day, yesterday, or even, we've even seen people send funds to a vault that was retired a month ago and they still, you know, have some code bug that um, caused them to get the wrong address to send funds to. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple different reasons I think behind that. And I, I don't think that, um, trust wallet is caching the addresses, but it's always possible that someone makes a change, starts caching an address, or like the transaction is constructed and someone just you know leaves it on their phone, or you know the construction is the the transactions made in your XDFI wallet. You walk away. Next time you go look at your wallet, that transaction's still there. If you send it and approve it, then your funds just go to the old vault address and it's just gone. So this proposed change would uh, make it easier to recover those funds and uh so, so that would so chad th this would make it so that um it's just a longer period where the funds are retiring so it, it there, there wouldn't need to be any kind of recovery process it would just be it would just be sending to uh an old vault that is st in, still in the process of retiring so then those funds are just processed normally is that the uh new, new behavior with if those adr passes yeah if I'm, if I'm not mistaken and hopefully i don't have it wrong uh, that the once the churn starts, you basically are, are moving from a six-hour window to a twelve-hour window of, of sending it to an old retiring vault. The churn interval increasing to, from three and a half days to, to I think I think nine is the suggestion is something like this. Just means that we're churning less often, and therefore the odds of you you know doing a swap during a churn is reduced because we're churning less frequently. Yeah, so this change also bumps up the churn interval to nine days. And currently it is three days. We also had, there was a period where it was it was seven days. So nine days being probably the, the longest churn interval that we've, uh, that we really had as a network. But um, also makes sense for a more mature network that has a majority of the active standby, a majority of the standby nodes already churned in. Yeah, are there any arguments like like what's the argument against longer churn intervals, if there really are any? Is I mean, it just like there are arguments for it and there are arguments against it? So another argument for it is that if we are churning less frequently, we are spending less room from the reserve to fund the gas that's used to to migrate these funds from you know Vault A to Vault B, and we spend um, I want to say it's like. Hopefully I don't get this wrong. I think it's like a thousand rune per churn uh, from the reserve to, to pay for the gas to move all these funds around. And so if we do it less often, we're obviously paying less 
rune per year overall. Uh, that's one of the arguments for doing this. One of the arguments against doing this is that um, with less of a churn, um, that means that uh, that getting out of the network uh, is is more takes more time. So if you want, if you need to do some sort of hardware maintenance because something's broken on your on your on your bare metal or your AWS box or whatever it is, you have a longer time you have to operate, and you might get more slashes because you have to wait until you're out of the network. Um, yeah, I mean, you can make a whole host of reasons why you shouldn't do this and a whole host of reasons why you should do this. And it just becomes quite nuanced and, and you know, uh, arguable. I believe it also makes it more difficult for a node that wants to churn out and do maintenance to come back in. Uh, like right. there's a, a shortened period in which they would be able to do that. And then if you miss a churn, then it's nine days. So it, like there's uh, much more potential to, to lose uh, income as a, as a node operator, like say, say you churn out and then you miss that churn in, you got to wait another nine days to, to, to come back. Cause there's a much shorter period uh, between when you would churn out and, and come back in if I'm correct. Right. And it also means that um, like most of the time for most people, when they get churned out, or at least like a good percentage of them, they get churned out due to age, meaning they've been an active validator for a long enough period of time. They're the oldest validator in the current since the you know since they've, they've been in the network, and so the amount of time you get before you get kicked out of the network just for age alone has been you know increased by you know three x because you go from uh, a three day churn to a to a nine day churn, so it's probably increased by approximately nine three uh, x, and so you're not going to get churned out as much. You know, it's just from age alone. I mean, you might be get turned off because of your, you know, you have a lot of slash points or some other reasons. But that's one of the, the, the another one of the like benefits is that you're spending more time in when you get in, right? But then also another one, another one of the arguments is that like, well, if the churn is um, uh, longer, that means that the the demand to get churned in when you want to get churned in is higher because if you don't make this churn, you have to wait nine days for the next opportunity. So the bond wars becomes kind of increased in a sense, right? Because you, you want to make sure you're in the next turn, because if you don't, you get to wait another nine days. And so maybe you'd buy more room to increase your bond to make sure you get them in this turn and not wait, you know, another nine days on, on lost profits and income and that kind of stuff. Right. But then at the same time, like if we have a, every once in a long, every once in a long, long while, we have like this, a major turn where like a, a huge quantity of nodes get churned out for uh, reasons of like, you know, people are offline or like a whole of different things, like, like huge slash points, blah, 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 whatever. And then the amount of time it takes to rebuild the validator set from, you know, from like 70 nodes to, to back to like 85 becomes, you know, you know, a month or two. Right. And that has, has effects on the network security and the bond and the yield for LPs and nodes. That has, I mean, it, it, there's so many ways this affects this. None of these ways are like very significant. I would argue like, it's not like a, None of these things are, are make or break. They're just like a bunch of different small changes. Well, it sounds like with changing that parameter, like perhaps at some point it would also be changed, like how many churn in and out at a time, maybe like, because it's, if it's so much less frequent, like if that was a problem, I don't know, maybe change it from three to four or something like, I don't know. Yeah. So you, I think it's said right now uh, from memory, if three get churned out, then it'll, add two to that number whatever gets churned out that adds two and so it'll look for five to be churned in all right so if two get churned out it'll look for four to get churned in and we can increase that number from that 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 number from two to be like three so 
if the three get churned out, then six get churned in, or or vice, you know, or whatever. We can we can tweak that if we wanted to. And by doing so, you're creating less competition on the bond wars, right? Because if more people are churning in, then you know the the line to get churned in in terms of bond requirements is lowered, right? And so that becomes part of the you know debate argument. Also, I, I saw someone ask the question, "What is a churn?" So it, uh, a churn is uh, the process by which new validators enter the network and then old validators leave the network. So it's a process that right now happens every three days. And that's, and that's what happens when the, the vaults change to new addresses. So new addresses are created. Uh, there's a, there's a, a basically a, a bond war, an auction to see who's going to be the new validators that join the network. And then some old validators leave the network. New TSS key shares are generated, and then the funds migrate to a new vault. So that's what the entire churn is. Whoever has the most rune gets added to the validator set, and then whoever has the least rune in the current validator set leaves, as well as the oldest node. And uh, you know, if you didn't update, or, or you know, if you're the worst performing node, then you get churned out. So there's a, a number of reasons why you can uh, why you can leave, and then you have to you have to bond in again, and you basically have to be one of the top performers in the in the auction to join to join the active validator set so the the, the churn is kind of the, the the core of Dorchain's vault security so if anyone was confused at, as to like what the uh the actual churn is but i think that pretty much covers the uh the adr and uh, likely a, a vote will start on that uh fairly soon i think and uh yeah i'm not sure if uh, yeah. oleg or a wizard had any um, on stage, so I'm not sure if they yeah, wanted sure. to contribute anything to this particular topic. Hey, um, thanks for taking... Uh, I don't have one specific to this, but if I could ask a question about something else, or did you want to stay on? Yeah, go for it. Okay. Um, so I've been looking at a lot of DEXs, and one in particular that's like really stood out to me is Trader Joe on Avalanche. And um, they have like this novel like upgrade to Uniswap V3 concentrated liquidity model that's like gotten their volume traded to like tvl ratio almost above one which is incredible um i was wondering is thorchain looking to do something similar has thorchain explored something similar just to you know like i think there's like a great flywheel effect here where you have more yields to lps than more people will want to liquidity pool and then thereby like you know increasing like liquidity and swaps for users you know where there's like less slippage just something like that what are your thoughts um well so i'm not i'm not um too privy on on trader joe's like concentrated liquidity change uh and so there might be elements to that that i'm missing so i don't, I don't want to say that i'm an expert on, on trader joe but generally when i've looked at the idea of concentrated liquidity and i've you know but i've been somewhat public about it in the past when I first saw it happen, I think Uniswap V3 was the first one to do this idea of cross-trade liquidity, right, where you can have an up to 40x, um, you know, uh, 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 capital efficiency for um, liquidity providers and such. Um, it sounded incredibly dumb to me, to be honest with you, like ridiculously stupid. Um, and the reason why that is is because uh, in like Uniswap V3's case, you are literally building the most perfect tool to fuck over your LPs. Like you, you could not imagine a more effective tool to fuck over your LPs as hard as cost your liquidity, which is why in Uniswap V3's case, like most people, like I think the report that I saw like a year or so ago, that was like 67% or something like that of LPs on Uniswap V3 are like, 
uh, at a loss, right? And that's because effectively what happens is uh, if you're a passive LP, you're not utilizing cross-trade liquidity, um, all the yield that you would get gets pulled from you and it gets it gets pulled out via um, analyzing markets and constantly adjusting their concentrated liquidity position on X, Y, and Z. And it's actually uh, quite harmful to a protocol, I would, I would argue, um, especially to the LPs. Uh, and so uh, I, it doesn't make sense for me from, from what I've seen. Maybe Trader Joe is doing something different and, and maybe there's some component that I'm missing and I'm happy to, to learn more about it or, or somebody explain to me what I'm missing or what have you. But concentrated liquidity, it, it's an attempt to uh, be more capital efficient and an attempt to be, you know, um, to get better pricing, I guess, in some ways or form, depending on the using like JIT or something like this. But like, you know, even JIT on Uniswap V3 is kind of a joke. It, nobody really thinks that it actually works. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, and I, I'm very skeptical that this, just by adding cost of liquidity that the trade volume is going to increase as much as you're suggesting. That doesn't make logical sense to me at all. So I, I would, I would want to dive deeper into the claim and, and how or why that would be true. Because just just because you make contrary liquidity, this doesn't mean that the trade volume would naturally increase. It just means that the the how LPs make money has been, has been shifted, not so much trade volume. Because the trader, I don't think it matters all that much to the trader. Like they're still getting the same swap fee of like 20 bips or something like this. And they're still getting the same price more or less. To my knowledge, maybe I'm missing something. So somebody please explain to me. Yeah, uh, well, I from observation, it looks like their their volumes have skyrocketed, um, uh, and I think like part of it is I, I think you have like a pretty decent um, understanding of what concentrated liquidity is. The only difference with Trader Joe is I think like if if whatever liquidity is in like in a particular bin, everyone kind of gets the same price until all the liquidity either goes from asset A to asset B like that, um, and it just makes it just makes the volume more efficient in that bin. So like if there's back and forth, then like, you know, um, now you have, it, I, I think, I really do think it will increase the volume substantially. Um, but why? why, why would that increase the volume? Well, there's more volume at a particular price for one. Why would there be more volume at a particular price? Cause it's conscious. Cause so whoever the LP is, is, Selecting a particular range to put all their liquidity in. Yeah, but the but the vault but the the price is the price. Like the price is what the market deems the price of you know AVAX or GMX or whatever the asset we're talking about. Like, like just because it's concentrated liquidity doesn't mean there's more demand for a particular price. It just means that the price the price is still going to be the price, and and the interest of trading at the particular price is the same no matter what the what the yield that an LP may or may not make on it. Right. I, I think you're correct in saying that it won't. Like the first order effect is not to increase the volume right away, but if there's more volume that's in that liquidity, there's more available. And because there's more available, traders would naturally gravitate towards that because they have to pay less slippage versus like on, on Thorchain, the slippage is enormous. Like, you know, to do like a 10,000 rune trade. You, you're yeah, but the slippage, the slippage, as I understand it, and I, again, I'm not a trader yeah. Joe expert, is, is, is a set fixed price. Of, of I think it's twenty bips or thirty bips, something like this. That's that's just the fee. That's there's that's not slippage. Uh, what do you, oh, I thought you were referring to that. So what do you, what are you referring to then? 
Um, I guess in an X, XY equals K model, you, you take a certain amount of slippage based on how much volume is there, correct? Like if there were 10 units of asset A and 10 units of asset B, you take out one unit of asset A and you roughly like, you know, you're taking 10% slippage. You're right? talking about the slippage, the slippage of the pool, not the slippage of the price. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I see them as equivalent, but I guess maybe they're not. But for example, like in Trader Joe, if there's, you know, one unit available in that bin for someone to trade, then you could have five people, like one person coming in to buy, one person coming in to sell, one person coming in to buy, one person coming in to sell, taking zero slippage, they all get the same price. Hmm. Um, and it's like substantially increased the volume there. So I was, I was wondering like, you know, like over the long term, more and more volume is going to gravitate towards concentrated liquidity DEXs. Um, would hate to see Thorchain get left behind, given that you know it's such a novel concept to to do this all cross chain. Yeah, I'd be I'd be nervous about it because like um, I'd be nervous about screwing over our LPs if we were to do that. That would be my my first attempt. Yeah, but like as an LP, you have the option to not not concentrate all your liquidity you know you can right you can but if you don't you, if you don't you get screwed that's the thing. if you don't you get screwed yeah because in, in the end what's happening is like so say you have a trade coming in and say that trade is gonna is gonna pay thirty dollars in fees right the question becomes who gets the thirty dollars right and if you are an active validator you'll probably get you know 28 of that dollars and, some, and then two dollars might go to the to the passive the passive guy and just reallocating of the thirty dollars of, of of income that's coming from this particular trade or swap, who's getting it? Now, in a, in a completely passive system like what Thorchain is, where you don't constantly adjust your you know your cost of liquidity into certain ranges or whatever, everybody gets an equal share relative to the, the the percentage of the pool that you own, right? And so you don't need to be a mathematician. You don't need to be constantly looking at the price and like constantly making transactions and constantly like adjusting your position all the time. Everybody gets the same. Hey, Chad, um, if I, could... I, I, I disagree yeah, here. I, I think too. like in a, in a... Can I phrase something that might help Chad understand this a little bit better? Because I agree with you, uh, sure. our wizard, um, which is, Chad, yeah, it's yeah. just a trade-off. Yeah. I've, I've done concentrated liquidity uh, provision myself, and I agree. It has a high likelihood of screwing over LPs. But you got to realize that um, the trade-off is if you have a ton more transaction throughput, then that $30 of fees that you might get could easily become $90. So you're trading off total volume, which does give more money to the liquidity providers with the chance of getting screwed through effectively impermanent loss, right? It's just a trade-off. So the, 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 it's not a clear-cut win to say that concentrated liquidity is absolutely idiotic because um, you, if you gain a whole bunch more transaction volume, because people absolutely are getting lower slippage, Right, they're getting far lower right. slippage. But the um, and that. But objectively, yeah. but objectively, Uniswap Uniswap LPs are getting screwed. Uh, I don't you, know. You can argue, but they're getting more more trade volume. But the but like from studies have shown, and and, uh, and I, I can find the P, the actual research if you want me to. But like most LPs on 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 Uniswap are so are losing. so I wouldn't doubt the most LPs. What concentrated liquidity does is it turns LPs into day traders. You have to be an incredibly, incredibly on-point LP to be able to make profit. Right. And that does right. one thing. It does one thing is it makes it such that 
um, LPs are no longer just kind of layman, anyone that just wants to, to earn yield. It makes it a professional um, endeavor. However, there is a flip side of that, right? The flip side of that is on the trader side, on the, on the person that wants to use the swap, they get far lower slippage. And that's what increases the volume, which makes it appealing to the LPs, but it makes it appealing to LPs that can maintain the position, adjust the positions, um, and actually be on point with it. You know, like I said, it becomes almost like day trading. So I don't do it. I don't do it because I realize what it takes and I can see how to be successful. And I just don't have the stomach or all, or the, the time to study how to do it successfully. But know that I don't think it's a, it's a clear cut loss because you're right. Most, most will fail just like most miners um, in proof of work are at a loss because it's the ones that actually know how to do it, know how to be capital efficient, know um, how to be competitive that will succeed. Does it mean that mining is fruitless? It is, you know, it is pointless? No. Right. It's a different way of doing it that admittedly brings in the more professional style LP um, LP providers, but it's not a clear cut loss that I, I fundamentally would disagree that it's a clear cut loss and proof is in the pudding from the viewpoint of the, the, uh, the so total a, success, a clear cut, a clear cut loss to whom to the entire network. Right? I look at it from a network point of view, right to Uniswap V3, not a clear cut loss. Yes. To majority of LPs. Sure. Because a majority of LPs do not know how to provide liquidity in a concentrated liquidity environment because it is super tricky. I don't disagree. You are going to get screwed if you are not on point and not studying the moves of the market. You are going to get screwed. But most LPs getting screwed doesn't mean that it's not a clear cut. It, it does not mean that it's a clear cut loss for the network as a whole to drive volume to the network, to get people using it as opposed to centralized services. And let's remember what our North Star is. Get people off the centralized services and make ThorChain competitive. So I'll leave it at that. I'll let RW continue the, you know, the, the argument. I got to bounce for work, but awesome chat, guys. Thanks a lot. Thanks, man. Thanks, Paul. Is the argument here mostly just that if the fees go down for swappers, that is that really the end result here? Where it's just like, where there's, there's to take away here. the concentrated liquidity part of it, where it's just like, if we just decrease the fees, then that is the direction the network wants to head in. Like, I think that's kind of a obviously true statement, but... Is that kind of the core of the, the thing here? Um, Just dropping fees? No, it's not. I think one is to allow LPs to earn more on whatever assets they have. And two is to allow traders to be able to get a better trade, a better price um, without moving the market too much. But like to add on to, to what the other guy was saying, like I think, um, yeah, a, a, a big part of this is, is so like if you look at um, Trader Joe, one of the things that they're trying to implement is something called auto pool. And I think it allows you to just automatically, like if the price moves a little bit, it'll reallocate, like it'll take out your pool and then like reallocate it closer to where the current price is trading. So you don't have to worry about it. So that like, there are ways to get around this. And I think like the second thing is LPs are on some level always getting screwed, right? There's a spectrum. If the price of one asset really moves one way, you're taking a permanent loss. So like it's just a matter of how much impermanent loss you want to take when you're doing concentrated liquidity. But I don't see it as like a total like loss for the system. I think like most people stand to gain. Um, it's not so obvious to me that it's just like uh, well, like a I total would, no. I would I would say that that most people stand to lose, and there's going to be a few LPs or you know data scientists and, and day traders or whatever that have complex, you know, uh, software that they've written that will constantly adjust their LP position 
And those people will do extremely well. And that's the we, we see that same thing on Uniswap A3 where there's like 10% yeah, of LPs that, are making... See, that's, that's not really the case. Because if, let's say, let's say volume increases by 10x. So like in your example, you said 28 goes to like uh, whoever's concentrated and two goes to the rest. But yeah. that, that case on the flip side of it is you were only bringing in $3 before and you're splitting that evenly, right? So like while the yeah, pie is larger... I, I think the not... thing that I'm, that I'm missing that I don't understand and I apologize is why constant liquidity liquidity would create an increase in trade volume. That's I don't think I quite understand that. I think I'm missing something. So like r- right now, like I have a bag of room, right? But almost none of it I've gotten by swapping on Thorchain. Like it's it's come from other places because the size that I wanted to take is like it doesn't it doesn't make sense to take like 5% slippage on a trade, right? With concentrated liquidity, I would be able to make that trade. That volume is now going to Thorchain rather than like trading Rune on, on a centralized exchange like Kraken or whatever. It's it's because those spreads come down when you have that liquidity concentrated in a particular price right. range. So that, you're saying the 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 fees that you pay, the swap fee that you pay in a concentrated liquidity model would be far lower, which means that they would they would garner more trade volume because the, the fees are cheaper, right? And the increased trade volume from the fees being cheaper would be greater than the the loss and and fees from the lower fees you're being charged. That's just saying. Do I understand you correctly? I think so. Yeah. By fee, do you mean like what the protocol takes from the swap, like a 0.2 percent fee? Is that is that what you're saying? Yeah. Like whatever. Like in our case, we, okay. We so do, that's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about the like in our case, we just a slip based fee model, right? Yeah. And yeah. how much we charge in fees relative to the size of your, your trade versus the, the depth of the pool. And in, in Uniswap, or I think in Trader Joe's case, they're, they're generally, from my understanding, and I could be wrong, is they use a, a simple XYK where they're, where they're taking like, I think, 20 or 30 bits, whatever the quantity is. I think it depends on the pool and other things. But like, I think in some, it's like they take five bits, I think, in like some of the stable coin swaps or something like, this, something like that. But like, but they have a, a, a static fee that's not dynamic to the amount of LPs or the amount of things. So I don't right. understand. So there's there's oh. that fee, but then there's also like, let's say the pool is like five units each of, of um, asset A, asset B, right? If I take one, if I take asset A out one by putting like depositing one of asset B, yeah. right? Then so you, get, so you got six I, of one and now four of the other. You're saying yeah. yeah, okay. So I won't get exactly one back. I'm gonna get like something way smaller than one just just to to balance it out versus if there was 60 if let's say there was 50 and 50 an hour to take one out and now there's 49 and 51 or whatever i'm gonna get a lot more for that one asset that i deposited than i would in the first case because there's more volume there's more um right right the depth is larger that's what i'm saying those those spreads really come down because of concentrated liquidity I'm not really talking about the 0.2% like fee that they take off the trade. That's still going to be there. Yeah. So then in that, in that scenario, then if you have a heap of pool in, in Trader Joe and there's five units on one side and five units on, on another side, and the total LPs, whether you're passive or, passive or, or, or um, active or whatever, and does the depth of those things change 
as you do contrary liquidity in that like instead of because you have a, a, a smaller range instead of contributing one you know unit to both sides you're contributing 1.2 mathematically even though you're only actually contributing one on both sides but mathematically it computes it as if it's like 1.2 is that what you're saying um yeah in effect yeah if if that's what you choose to do as an lp um and you want to like tighten your range up by that much but like every lp can decide how tight they want to be and where they want to concentrate their liquidity and stuff yeah yeah um, and so uh, I know Oleg's got something to hear. Oleg, you, okay. you wanted to contribute something. Just a quick consideration, uh, specifically on that topic. I, I had questions for ADR7, but we can come back to that later. Um, I've looked at Trader Joe, and like as Paul was saying, you allow or you impose that your LPs become active, professional LPers. Let's not yep. forget that Trader Joe is on Arbitrum and AVAX. Like, those are chains working at the second level. Torchain mains volume comes between like Bitcoin, Rune, and Ethereum, much slower chains. So I don't even think it's like possible just because of the nature of the chains that uh, Torchain enables to focus too much energy on that just because you can't be inactive or have a complex trading strategy or LP strategy based on a 10 minutes block blockchain. Well, I think I think you you could do concentrated liquidity on the rune side. So if you deposit it, if you're a dual sider, you couldn't do this for savers, right? A savers is like to, to the point that you're making. It would take ten minutes to, to adjust, adjust your position and that, your LP position, and that would be probably too slow to be, to be viable or usable. But if you were, you know, a dual sider and and you have, you know, you produce both BDC and rune to the to, to be an LP, you could you could use the rune address to to adjust your uh, concentrated liquidity position on the rune side so that that we could do within five seconds which maybe that's quick enough probably is quick enough perhaps uh just something to consider uh because i know like arbitrum is near zero cost or zero fees uh even the cents they cost like three cents i think that's like 10x what a basic arbitrum transaction costs so just something to keep in mind uh, as well just the limitations of the external chains that we we work with yeah so, I, I mean, in Thorchain's case, like, so we already have this idea of um, virtual pool depths, right? And and we've used that in the past with, with synthetic after, um, assets, for example, where um, when computing the, the you know, you, you put in X number of coins and we're going to try to calculate Y in terms of the number of coins you're going to receive on the other side. And that's all done by the slip-based feed model. And if we want to, and we've done this in the past to, to, to give you a better trade, meaning you you're getting more Y for your X in a sense. Um, we can do that just by multiplying or increasing the, the depth of the pool mathematically. Like it's you know it's set to a specific number of Bitcoin, but we can we can double the amount of Bitcoin, double the amount of room mathematically internal to network to win to distance calculations, and we actually do this for uh, synthetics. So like if if we if we really wanted to to entice more trading on Thorchain via dropping its fees. Right. Um, to I think it's what concentrated liquidity is uh, trying to uh, to do. If I'm not, if I'm understanding our wizard correctly, and I hope I am, uh, we can do that just by adjusting the you know the create a virtual pool uh, for Bitcoin trades, and so we could we could double the pool depth mathematically, which would effectively have the the fees you know or it's something that it's, it's um, definitely not linear like that, but but to keep it simple, we'll just call it linear. 
Um, and so you can like have the fees that you're, that you're paying when you're in those trades and, and enticing more trades because it's cheaper, blah, blah, blah. We can do that. But then the question becomes, okay, well, if we do that, then the income of the nodes and the income of the LPs is also being, it could be halved. Um, is that something we want to do? Do we think that the increased trade volume would result in, even though we're paying half in fees, we'll get more than double the trade volume and therefore it would be mathematically profitable for the LPs or the nodes to do so. And, that, and we can have a discussion and debate in the community about whether that, that makes sense or doesn't make sense. People can have different views on this topic, I'm sure. Yeah, honestly, empirically, it shows that your, your uh, LPs would profit more even though they're taking like less fees. Um, yeah, you're, you're saying that the, the, the trade volume increase would be greater than the losses that you would experience on a correct. per trade level. Correct. Yeah, and maybe that's true. Like, I, I tell you honest, I don't really have a clear understanding if that would be true or not, and we can we can debate about this. Yeah, to to me, it just seems more like a function of there being less trade, more volume going through the pool, and less of an effect of there being concentrated. Like that, it, it, it's the second order effect of there being concentrated liquidity is fees are lower, so there's more volume. When in reality, we can just. You could. There's other ways to turn fees down and increase that volume, where it doesn't need to be through a concentrated liquidity model. Same thing with like you know, um, like JIT or just-in-time liquidity, which is something that Uniswap does, and I think Chainflip is doing it as well, and maybe maybe Trader Joe does it does it as well. I'm not really quite sure, but just-in-time liquidity um, effectively allows you to um, to change your posi- like position, your LP position on an incoming trade so that you adjust it like right before, right before a trade, right? And, and that makes sense because it gives you more concentrated liquidity and it gives you better better pricing so that if there's fluctuations of, in market price, you can adjust more quick, more quickly. In our case, we don't do that. And we do actually something very different. And the difference is that we use um, um, synthetics to arbitrage these things. So, so instead of adjusting LP positions and then concentrating income on the LP side, to the individuals who are having this kind of active relationship with the network, we're doing it through uh, our bots being able to trade uh, quickly and efficiently within one block uh, to adjust fees and adjust, not just fees, but adjust uh, depths of the pools to correct prices and that kind of stuff. And for me, that makes more logical sense and maybe I'm missing something, but from my perspective, it makes more logical sense because you are creating more volume to, to correct the price rather than trying to uh, to reduce volume and just concentrate on just repositioning LP positions and, and new ranges and that kind of thing. I think that's more profitable for the network. One is you're like, you're trying to like abstract income from the regular LPs and you're trying to give it to the more active LPs. And the other is like, you're still acquiring the goal of having, of keeping the pool price to mimic the market price, but you're doing it in a way that doesn't, you know, disadvantage your LPs who are providing that liquidity to begin with. So it becomes like an interesting conversation and debate. And I don't think necessarily that I'm necessarily right or, or wrong, but it's an interesting topic to, to, to talk about. Yeah. Um, just one final thing. I, I got to jump off. Um, I'll listen to the recording later. Um, I just want to say, I, I hope we're not confusing fees because like fees isn't, it, it's like if you're paying the 0.2% fee, whether the pool is 10 units deep or a hundred units deep, it doesn't matter. You're still paying that fee, but the price benefit that you get from swapping one asset in the first case versus the second case where there's 10 units versus 100 units is much more substantial if there's 100 units versus 10 units. 
right? And so that that's that's what I'm calling slippage, not necessarily fee. That slippage is much smaller. Um, and like, so the, just to address this, maybe, yeah. maybe I, what I'm not understanding though, in, yeah. in the trader's just and I, and I apologize if I'm missing something here. Is that it, to my understanding, I, and I, I could be wrong, is that it doesn't actually matter the depth of the of the pool in, the, in that context, whether there's 10 units deep or 100 units deep. The because the, the the mechanism of computing the value of what you're putting in X tokens and you're getting out Y tokens is a constant. It doesn't actually really matter. No, no, no. So if there's, or, or if what am I missing? If it's a hundred units deep, you can trade a hundred units at that same price. Versus if it's ten units deep, you can only t- trade ten units before it moves to the next price. Oh, on the curve you're talking about. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Um, I, think I, I think I understand what you're what you're what you're putting down. Okay. Yeah. Just the second thing I wanted to mention is I, I know you're worried about um, screwing over LPs, and I think like for this to become really massive i think like you need smart players who are lping not just people who are passive because it just seems like that's the direction that the market's going and a lot of volume is going towards these dexes that do have concentrated liquidity and yes like if you're an lp then you don't want to do that then you know you have savers like on the other side of it a lot of the quote-unquote smart guys with the, the big money guys will be the lps and then you know you could just uh deposit in savers um so yeah, there's well, just that side of it. If if you were to add concentrated liquidity in Thorchain's model, um, savers would be included in the people that would would profit less, correct? Or no? Um. Well, I don't know how the fees are actually distributed to savers. Like, is it just a percentage of the entire, like whatever comes in, but to the network, like you know, fifty percent goes to savers, or like, um, there's some yeah, details the- here that. The, the math works out in the sense that, that LPs get uh, 100% of the income initially, in a sense. Like it, all the income comes from, from into the, LP, um, to the, um, to the, to the LPs. And the network just tracks like how much, in this block, how much did, did this pool profit? Okay, it profited, it made, you know, 50 room worth of value. We'll just call it that. And then we calculate how much synthetics exist in this pool. We'll just, we'll just call it 50% just to keep the numbers easy. Uh, so half of that uh, of that fifty rune income goes to the um, sense because they have half the the, the depth in this, in this in this sense, but then you do another divide divide by two because sense only make half of their income. So in the in the end, you know you're you're saying that um, that uh, that the sense are going to earn you know twelve point five rune in this particular case, and the LPs are going to earn you know the remainder of that fifty, which would be you know. 37.2 or something like this. Okay, yeah. I mean, I mean, savers is going to be a function of whatever total fees are anyways, right? So like... Yeah, it would be interesting how, yeah. in in an active model of constant liquidity, like, because the yield to the LPs is no longer, like, just consistent, right? Everybody gets the same yield relative yeah, exactly. to the LP units. It it would it would create complexities around how we calculate the yield for savers now because now it's like either you can constantly equate doesn't matter to savers and you just you still take that twelve point five and then within the dual side LPs they're 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 splitting the thirty seven point five relative to their their ranges whether they got like a, a tight range or a, lo- a long range in terms of their 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 dual side LP side and you divvy up that side. 
And then the Sabres are just like, like unaffected by this entire thing. Or they maybe they are affected if you want to do the map a different way. Like it depends on how you want to approach it. Yeah, I, I think like the complexity here of calculating the, the yield is it's definitely more, but I don't know if that should be like a reason to like not do this considering just how, how um, amazing it is like on these other platforms, like how much volume they're able to generate and how much yeah. yield they're able to bring to LPs. Like, yeah, that, that calculate, you could just do like a running total, like of the past seven days, like the, you know, the savers vault generated this and there was this yeah. much in the savers vault divide, you know, there you go. There's your yield. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, like when it comes to this kind of stuff, uh, this is not really my area of expertise on the, on the project. Lena's probably really understands the stuff more deeply than I do, and and she's the one that kind of designed the slope-based fee model itself, and and like uh, in kind of defining how we structure our LPs and LP units and all that kind of stuff. So this is like a, this is not my personal contribution, my personal expertise on the particular project. So Lena would be a better person to talk to about this topic than than I would, to be honest with you. Um, but it is interesting uh, conversation for sure, and I'd be lo- I'd love to learn more about it. And, and if there's things that I'm missing, I I'd love to you know correct my my falsehoods. Yeah, um, why don't I DM you? I, I actually got to take off. Um, but thanks for giving me this much time. I, I really yeah. appreciate it. DM, DM me and, and, and shoot me some links to some articles or or whatever that you think would be valuable for me to to learn more about it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for coming up, man. Uh, I actually like there, there's actually something similar that uh, I've been thinking about for a while that maybe we can just talk about for a little bit. And it, it's kind of related to it, this whole topic, which is why I wanted to bring this up now before we get into uh, ADR 8. And that's just bringing down. So, OK, Jed, you mentioned the virtual pool depth and uh, how we do have a different virtual pool depth for synths. And uh, one of the things I've been thinking about is. Basically, having that apply. Sorry, I'm I'm walking outside right now, so if there's like uh, noise. Then just let me know. But yeah, uh, I was thinking about uh, increasing the virtual pool depth for just savers deposits. So not for synth, uh, you know, any kind of synth transaction or anything like that, but just for savers deposits and withdrawals. You could set a virtual pool depth of double the the current depth, and effectively, what you're doing is making it so it takes less fees to deposit savers or to withdraw savers. And you can apply similar behavior to something like order books, where I think uh, just the behavior of synths and the fact that you need to pay a full slip based fee in order to get a synth from the L1 asset is a, a detriment to the actual adoption. Of, of the feature and obviously we can't remove the fees in total no i think we should remove the fees totally but i think we should look and see like where we can improve in uh especially like the areas that we want to improve in in liquidity so uh, what's your thoughts about increasing the the depth for just uh like savers deposits order books and like extra features that are on top of savers but not uh, on top of since but not the actual since themselves yeah, I mean, I'm open to have like a conversation like that. Um, if we if we want to make it, you know, cheaper for savers to enter and exit the pools, we can we can like you know increase the the depth of the layer one pools artificially for those particular calculations. Same thing with order books. Although in order books case, like once you have the synth, there's no more um, fees and other than the actual you know order that you're placing itself, like the actual trade itself. So. Within order books, like, you know, if you just stay within the synthetic world and you just trade back and forth between Bitcoin and 
um, USDC or Ethan USDC or like or whatever it is your 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 trading you know style is sort of how you want to call it. Uh, then you you know then the fees you're paying is it's just paying synthetic fees, which case I think it's like even cheaper because that's I think the I think the fees are cut in half for for synthetic trades just to um, make it more appetizing for arbit- arbitrage bots. No, synthetic fees are the same as normal swaps, and then that was changed uh, not long after since where since came out. I believe they were half for a while or double the depth, but uh, they're they're now one to one with the L one. Yeah, I, th- I thought we. I thought we had changed it back because I think that we had we had put by half and then we realized that it was a, a problem security problem with the with uh, manipulating the order uh, in the swap swap manager and swap queue and then we fixed the issue with there was and I thought we put it back but maybe we didn't I'm, I'm not, I can't remember to be honest yeah I'm pretty sure it's still one to one with regular trade size so if you do a, a swap with l1 obviously you don't pay the, the outbound as much of a you know native transaction fee. But there's still all the other considerations, uh, and yeah. So, uh, yeah, I just think yeah, be an interesting. You're right, by the way. The the virtual uh, multi is, is, is set to one on the. Uh, I just checked the mirrors. Wait, so you're saying that it could go back to half? Like that that bug is kind of avoidable in a different way? Yeah, I think we already fixed the bug. The reason why we took it off to begin with, and then I think the reason mm-hmm. maybe the reason why is because. Um, the instead of doing virtual depths at like twice the depths, whatever we set the the outbound the minimum outbound fee to be a dollar, so that it creates the correct incentives for arbitrage bots to use synthetics over over layer ones because it's faster and cheaper and more effective for the for the, the network itself. And so maybe instead of making the swap fees cheaper, we had to set the minimum outbound for TSS signing to be a, a buck. Yeah, I think that's kind of related to ADR008. But like, what I'm saying right now is just looking at that virtual depth and applying it only to, uh, to extra things on top of synths that we want to incentivize, like like order books. And also, I'm, I'm curious, I didn't know that order books didn't have an extra fee when you make the swap. I don't think that really makes sense. Why don't you need to pay a... So, okay, so you, you have an L1 and you want, you're placing an order book order. It gets converted to a synth and stored in a module. How do you? How are you not paying a second fee when that synth swaps to another asset? No, in that case, you are. If you're going from layer one to layer one using order books, you are in effect paying like um, four swap fees. You're, you're or uh, or yeah, four swap because you're trading. Oh, from... you're talking about if you start with the synth and then you you, you can just place the order with the synth without actually right. having. Right. If you're two... already in the, the synth world and you're going to and from synth, then you're only paying for the swap that you're making and therefore it's just just as cheap the same price as you know anything else for that matter so it becomes a, a more or less a free feature in a matter in a matter matter of speaking in some sense but like if you're going from layer one to layer one then you're gonna you're gonna you're, you're gonna double swap into a synthetic and you're gonna wait until you know your your trade is executably executable and then it double swaps to the other layer one whatever the hell that is Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, let's get started on ADR eight then, because that's kind of related to what we were talking about with the outbound fee. So, or, uh, yeah, real quick before that, I okay. think I think Oleg uh, wanted to circle back to finish up on zero zero seven. Maybe if you want to chime in on that first. Yeah, thanks. Um, so, just going back to ADR uh, 007, uh So, I understood uh, the 
fund migration and churn interval changes, uh, but in the alternatives considered, it, it says protocol changes to continue observing retired vaults and make a best effort to refund inbounds if a quorum of nodes of the retiring vault remains. Um, so I, I just want to insist on that, how I, I've been always advocate, advocating for, for that. And if there are any risks or complexities, uh, then, then I'm happy to review my opinion. But if, if it is offered as a best effort basis, I think it becomes a duty for Torchain to improve of that. I just see so many angles on how um, you mentioned like interfaces or wallets shouldn't cache that. That's fine, but we, we can never control like user behavior. And also as a pure interface at Torswap, we depend on external wallets. We can't then integrate any wallet we see fit if for some reason there's a behavior that they deem useful in their UX that is just incompatible or that adds tremendous risk uh, when combined with Torchain's model. So I, I just feel like, I, I don't think there's a perfect solution here, but if on a best effort basis, which I would say looking at the churn rate would be most of the time, uh, if funds could be rescued above a certain amount and even there could be a fee for the protocol or the nodes for doing so, uh, I just think it becomes much more real realistic to kind of erase or mitigate that risk because if I'm the product manager of Coinbase DeFi wallet and I'm looking at integrating Thorchain to provide BTC to Ether or BTC to stablecoin swaps uh, without relying on the centralized part of the exchange, then I I'll probably just like do a risk assessment. And then my dev tells me that if if my dev team fucks up, then it can cost me like 250K. That's that's a no go. That's a no go for like all the bigger organizations, uh, the smaller ones. Uh, I remember at some time, uh, at some point, we cashed it at Torswap. That was a mistake. It cost us dearly, and then we removed the caching. And for some reason, there was one weird use case where it was still cached. We fucked up again, and then for four straight weeks, I would set up alarms in the middle of the night, like when the turn was to happen, just to do a quote or do a trade just to make sure that our system updated and there, there, there was no like outlying flaws. So again, I understand we can't fix stupid from stupid, but I think if there are sensible ways of improving that, I think it should be strongly considered by, uh, by Thorchain. Yeah, I mean, maybe like the, the, probably the simplest way of solving this problem or the more, the, probably the most effective way of solving the problem more arguably, and I hadn't really um, thought of it much until until you were just speaking there. But um, is that whenever we um, we monitor the the, the, the BC one addresses and ETH addresses and all these things for inbound and outbound transactions and such, and once a vault is emptied, meaning that all the migration is done and there's no more funds in it, we, we basically stop monitoring that particular vault because there's no reason to because it's no longer part of the network anymore. We've churned. We are we, we got we discarded it. Blah blah blah. But hypothetically speaking, we could. Um, continue to monitor old vaults, which would, you know, in effect, it would be almost nothing to monitor because there's nothing actually happening with it. But we could monitor it and then say if um, any vault that we gets, ever gets sent funds that the network still has control over, because sometimes it will and sometimes it won't, depending upon how old that particular vault is, like how many churns we've had since then. Um, we can try to make a, uh, an observation for an inactive or retired vault and then which just triggers a refund from that same vault, right? And so we just, you know, we just disregard what the intention was if they're trying to swap or whatever, and we just do a refund. Yeah, absolutely. And I think so, this could be paired or synchronized with 
which each churn. So before doing the actual new churn, you look at all the vaults that the protocol still has access to. And if there are funds there, you just refund them. Yeah, the, the problem can become more complicated when like somebody sends USDC, for example, or a BEP2 asset to an old address and we can't send it back to you because you know there's no there's no gas asset on that on that wallet to be able well, to Well that would spend. be to the router and the router is static I believe, right like that that doesn't actually churn with the with the vaults Yeah yeah but uh, it wouldn't be case for like you know bet 2 assets for example Yeah I mean I think it would still be a considerable improvement over the current situation Yeah um and I think I, I think I feel like I need to think through it from a security perspective because I'm feeling there might be some security concerns with doing something like this. But I need to think it through more. And of course, there could be like uh, we we refund like ninety five percent or we refund ninety nine percent, but we take a flat like twenty bucks fee or something like that just to pay for the Alba gas. Um, but not to single out any wallets. It's just that Thorswap we don't have a wallet, so XDFi is the most widely used wallet on uh, Thorswap. And then there's this habit or behavior, or I don't know. And sometimes it's weird with multiple monitors. You click on a swap and then it pops behind one of your windows. And then the next morning you wake up and I don't know, you're confused. You, have, you didn't have your coffee, whatever. And then you sign, you, you want to do a new swap, but you actually signed the previous swaps. So then funds go to like an expired vault. It's clearly the user's fault. He, he wasn't careful, but of course they're not going to blame themselves. Like they're going to blame the wallet, the interface, the protocol, whatever. So I just... Yeah, I, I think strongly think that uh, if there is a solution, it should be pursued. Yeah, um, that's something I'll, I'll think more on that um, about the viability of doing something like this. Um, it is it is a bit of a funny thing because uh, in general, like blockchains in general, do not try to make any attempts to be like user friendly or or like you know. Make up for like if you send money to an OX address that, that you don't have a privacy for, then. You, but you know. why settle for that? That's well, the, they got to fork the whole code. <laughs> yeah, a, yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's 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 interesting kind of debate of like uh, how much how much responsibility does the network have to, to protect people from themselves? I think it's more about uh, the protocol's responsibility of making the best UX. Um, yeah, and when you talk about best things, you actually sometimes what we're talking about is like protecting the user from fucking something up and and burning their own money because they make some, you know, bonehead mistake. Uh, brought up Chilius too. Hey, you have some thoughts? Yeah. Uh, hello. Uh... Yeah, from the uh, from the torso perspective as well, uh, the problem as uh, exists on the limitation as well as Ledger, for example, has limitation to some of the parts of the swaps, and later on, not because of the user error, but for example, for the because of the network uh, goes up high on the gas fees, the transaction goes late and uh, yeah just treats by not the even the uh, being a stupid but just being uh, in the wrong place in the long time and uh, using the yeah basically ledger wallet uh, 
the funds are lost by no mean. Yeah. All right, get to move on to uh, 008. Yep. All right, ADR 008, and this will be the last thing for today. Um, this is dynamic outbound fee multiplier. So right now, the current behavior is ThorChain charges three times the gas fee for the native chain to send out transactions to that chain. So uh, if you're, let's say the gas fee is $5 on, on Ethereum, uh, ThorChain charges 15 to send out any transaction. And uh, this, well, okay, so, so the, the current that's the current behavior. And the proposed change is to uh, dynamically change this multiplier depending on how much revenue the, the protocol has made in, in uh, measuring it against what's actually paid versus how much it's made. Uh, so what, what this should do in effect is over the next couple of months, bring down gas fees for uh, especially Ethereum and Bitcoin swaps, but it, it should bring down gas fees to parity uh, of what the network is actually paying over the over the midterm. Uh, the, the change won't happen right away. The the, uh, the multiplier will continue to adjust downwards until it reaches this equilibrium point, and uh, that is the breadth of the of the change. So um, it, you should see a lower especially Ethereum, because that, that is obviously the, the highest cost gas fee uh, that is on ThorChain. So that is the current change, although there is a lot of argument about uh, reserve income, which in my opinion is kind of a, a separate conversation. This is a change to bring gas fees to parity, but they're, they're kind of conflated because this mechanism does bring income. So there's, a, along with this, there, there's now uh, some, some clamoring back and forth about how to make up for that lost reserve income and how to bring just more parity towards uh you know where that income is is coming from and those ideas are basically uh changing the outbound fee so there's there's a couple different fees that are charged for each swap and that's the liquidity fee the gas fee and then an additional outbound fee basically uh charging for the the tss swap and uh so this this proposed change this adr changes the behavior of that gas fee and uh, now, because this change is also taking away uh, income from the from the reserve, people are are suggesting that we find a uh, a better way to charge that reserve fee, the the outbound fee. So uh, that's not encompassed in this ADR, but I think that's going to have to be another ADR where where we figure out uh, how to patch that hole, basically, and bring income, continue to bring income to the reserve without just charging Ethereum users for it, because that's essentially what is uh, happening right now. And the result should be a, a real, uh, a very material uh, cost reduction in Ethereum swaps on ThorChain, especially ones where Ethereum uh, is sent out from the network. So like a Bitcoin to Ether swap. You want to cut interesting things, assuming this gets merged and adopted and whatever. Um, that we were just having a d discussion earlier in this conversation about if you drop the fees of a trade, or you get you, get, you know you get better you get a better execution on your trade, uh, does that cause an increase in trade volume? Right, like I think that was what our our wizard was arguing. Yes, and that's what his argument for concentrated liquidity. So, like, 
you could make an argument that that making this change where we're going from you know three x uh, gas price um, for Ethereum trade Ethereum uh, transactions to one point five x, which would be you know basically cut in half more or less, like does that trigger a larger volume of trades through the Ethereum uh, pool or pools? Uh, that'd be an interesting just thing to thing to watch, like a, like a case study. Yeah, for sure. And I think this mostly affects the, the smaller swaps, uh, you know, because you could think about, let's say, a $100 swap, uh, in Ethereum, like a $100 Bitcoin to Ethereum swap. You are So the slippage fee is going to be very low for a trade like that. Um, and that's just because it's a small swap with very deep pools. So there's going to be low slippage, but you're going to be paying a ton in gas fees. So, you know, if you say the, the gas fee is just, you know, uh, three or four dollars for the Ethereum network, and then all of a sudden it's three times that. So you're paying, uh, you know, between like 12 and, you know, you're, you're, say you're paying $15 for the, for the Ethereum gas fee, $15 on a $100 swap, that's 15% of, of your entire swap. So uh, it, it's a very significant impact, especially the, the, the smaller Ethereum trades. So this should see, a, I, I think it should see a very material impact on, um, like I, I don't think it'll. I don't know if it'll result in increased trade volume through the network, but I think it'll it'll definitely make for much happier traders uh, in in the Ethereum pools because they're being they're gonna they will be charged much more fairly for for gas. And then hopefully we can find a better solution. I, I think it'll be pretty easy to find a a better solution going forward on how to make up that income. And the the answer to that is most likely just slightly slightly increasing the outbound fee for for. Uh, all other swaps. So uh, everyone's paying their everyone's paying the equal share to the network for uh, for for the, the key gen and and you know sending out uh, for basically processing the transaction. You know you set that for for a dollar per swap and it's already. Uh, I, I mean I haven't done the analytics on this, but uh, you're bringing in the income from everybody rather than from just ETH and somewhat Bitcoin uh, swappers. So it seems to be a, a much more fair change, but there's a lot more. Uh, we, we, yeah, some people want to figure out how to patch the hole in income to the network uh, as a result of this too. So it's probably going to result in a new ADR to get that solved. Go ahead, Oleg. Any thoughts? Yeah, I just want to, I, I don't have a strong opinion uh, on this one as the previous one, but um, from an integrator perspective, uh, I know most of the potential partners we speak with they about 50% of them would not have only TorChain as a cross-chain providers. And most of them seems to opt um, for like comparing quotes from different cross-chain providers, be them decentralized or centralized, and then just offering or suggesting the best one to uh, the users. So I, my gut feeling would tell me that this wouldn't translate immediately into a trading increase. But I think in the long-term strategy of TorChain being kind of like a DeFi backbone that no one really know they are using it. Uh, I think that that change still goes well um, with with Thorchain becoming the back end of uh, most wallets or DeFi exchanges. Yeah, in, in my view, like as as somebody who's been around for a long time and, and helped design and architect this entire thing, um, this idea that we're, we're trying to address at AR zero zero eight is fixing a design flaw. And I, I consider this to be a design flaw in ThorChain and the fact that we that we um, 
that basically we're, we're, we're making an income to the reserve through that is relational to the gas cost of a particular chain. And that really doesn't make any sense to me. And I think it's just something uh, that I, I had overlooked, you know, in the earlier years, like back in 2019 and 2020, when myself and Lena were architecting all the leasing and, and whiteboarding everything. And so it, to me, I'm excited to see this happen just because it, it this fixes uh, an, an unfairness that we have in the design. And I want to, and I love to see it, see it just get fixed and addressed. And so that way, uh, whatever income we're paying into the reserve to top that up, which is what was something we want and need to have in the, into the future, then it's just done equally across in a, in a chain agnostic way where everybody just, everybody's paying a fair and equal share. Yep. Should be, I think it should lead to much more fair behavior and yeah, I, I'm in, definitely in favor of bringing down the Ethereum fees to parity. And I, I think, is anyone that's that's has made a swap using ethereum knows how expensive those fees are and anything we can do to, to bring it down to uh more sustainable levels i think is going to be a huge win for the network on the long term so yeah looking forward to that and uh, i think that just brings us especially with ethereum being one of our deepest pools it's going to be a huge benefit uh to the network because it improves the user experience of our second deepest pool uh by depth so I can't see anything but good things coming out of that. So another interesting thing relating to this, or, or t like um, in parallel to this, that we we haven't we actually never talked about this publicly, um, um, but it's it's relating to this. Is that and that whenever we do charge gas fees, you always uh, put up like one point five x whatever the Ethereum or Bitcoin gas currently is, and the reason why it's one point five and not, not one point zero is because we want to make sure that that when we broadcast a transaction, we're executing a swap that we get into the, the next block as reasonably as fast as possible. We don't want to be like delayed for, you know, uh, 45 minutes because we're always waiting for because of the gas fees that all of a sudden increased on Ethereum or whatever. And, and by putting it 1.5 X, we're more, more likely to be in the next block, right? Statistically speaking. And therefore we don't need to worry about other things downstream about, um, about broadcasting a transaction to the mempool and then, you know, for, for a chain that we're not monitoring mempool and then reschedule to another Asgard and then double, double spend ourselves and that kind of thing. So it'd be interesting if we, if we kind of explored more about like ways we can push, push the envelope and, and go from 1.5 X down to one closer to one X without taking on the risk of a, a potential double spend. And if we could do that, we could even, we could even further, um, cheapen the the uh, the fees paid in, in, a, in a swap or trade. Yeah, and specifically integrators have been asking for this and asking because a, a lot of them are used to uh, very EVM centric networks that don't really have to deal with this gas fee issue. And there's really not a lot of networks that do have to deal with the gas fee issues like this. I've even seen uh, Chainflip in their recent spaces. They've been discussing how how to handle this same exact issue that, that we are. It's a, it's a cross-chain problem that no one has really solved. And I think this is a very reasonable solution to get there, uh, where the network determines how much it's spent on gas fees and how much, it's, uh, how much it's charged for gas fees and tries to bring that as close to parity as possible. So I think makes the changes make a ton of sense and you know hopefully we can get something like this through. And then over the next, it'll, it'll take time for this to come into effect because the... Um, I, yeah, I, I'm not exactly 100% sure how the how the mechanism works, but as there's a greater and greater profit, it 
slowly brings that multiplier down uh, and then eventually it should reach parity. So this is, we're talking about over the period of like, you know, one to two months to get down to a one X gas fee. Uh, and then it should just dynamically adjust itself as, as time goes on. So, yeah, I think that's pretty much the, uh, the breadth of ADR eight. So, yeah, I think that that's the, pretty much the major stuff covered ADR seven, uh, and eight. I think there's going to be a vote on both of them probably fairly soon. End up maybe in ADR nine discussing the, uh, reserve income and adjusting the outbound fee. Yeah, that that one's an interesting one. I think that that would be a more a more interesting uh, debate because it's it's much more um, um, uh, it's much more uh, subjective about what the what the reserve income should be and how much like who's paying that reserve income. That that'd be an interesting conversation when that when that gets gets ready. Yeah, I don't. It just just doesn't make sense to lump them all together. It's it's definitely a separate. Um, separate issue but you know another because then there's so many ways to bring income to the reserve that uh i I think it'll be a much longer and more in-depth conversation and and it's not one that needs to be like solved today you know where it's like ETH fees are an issue that we could solve today so we should solve it today but then the reserve income that's a an issue over the time over the uh over the period of you know multiple years not not something that has any like real material effect on the network uh, like today or, t- or tomorrow. Well, something like decreasing the Ethereum outbound fees does have a material effect today and tomorrow. So absolutely cool. Any, any uh, uh, yeah. Any other stuff you guys wanted to discuss or anyone want to come up for questions? Is anything for me? I don't know if the audience does. Yep, same here. Looks like no requests, so I think we're good to call it. Cool, cool. All right. So, you guys, uh, yeah, every Friday. See you pr- probably next week. And, uh, yep, Friday is at, at 12 p.m. Eastern time. And uh, we'll upload this on YouTube later today. And uh, have a great weekend, everybody. See you. Bye, guys. See you guys. Thanks. Bye-bye.